This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. We are back for another action-packed episode of Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. To my left, I have my black queen, Alyssa Fuchs, sitting up in these streets with the snapback pointed backwards and the headphones on her head, holding the phone on Facebook Live like you always should be doing. And to the left of my left, I have my boy Elliot running the streets of Harlem all the way, all the way down by Adam Clayton Powell, and he knows Poppy with the chopped cheese sandwiches, don't you? Uh. Oh, you already know. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I know it's stuff over here. So, guys, if you're wondering what's happening, we have a very special show. Selena got deported back to wherever she's from. Jackie, oh. I tripped her, and now she's stuck in Brooklyn on a twisted ankle. So it's me and Alyssa and Elliot, and this show is the There's takeover. There's going to be no rules today. No, no rules. rules and the takeover <laughs> of the whites. That's right. It's all of us here, guys. All right. <laughs> we're Chet, Chet's making an appearance today? Chet is making an appearance today, guys. I am very excited about this show. Hello, Chanel Brown. Thank you for messaging us and watching the show. And if you are wondering where people are listening from they're listening from 90.3 fm whcr they are also listening on Alyssa's facebook live stream and of course my facebook live stream thank you to everyone who is streaming on my facebook live we have an action-packed show ready for you but before we get to that let's do some introductions i think i'm too short for your facebook live yeah seriously i can't I'm, even I'm see getting, you i'm getting i'm getting blocked by your microphone over here oh yeah all right let me, let me move my microphone boom boom all right so i am Alyssa fuchs and i'm your political and legal correspondent you can find me on facebook at facebook.com slash Alyssa fuchs with that i or on twitter at Alyssa fuchs also with an i or you can leave a question or a comment on the fan page politically preposterous which is facebook.com slash politically preposterous or poll preposterous on Twitter. What about your Black Planet? Uh, my what? Your Black Planet. Uh, I'm not. Do I look like Rachel Dozan? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're starting early today, huh? No soul swipe, no nothing. Uh, no, no, no. No, no Rachel Dozal in it. All right, all right. Acknowledging in my my place and staying in my lane That's for the right. most part. Know your or place, trying to. Beloved. All right. Who are you? Oh, it's it's my turn. Elliot, bring your mic to you. So this is Elliot's first time in the studio. He doesn't know the mic has to be hey, in his space. Hey, what's up? This is my first time on radio, period, so. No cursing. Welcome. Are you uh, mother-loving excited? I'm very excited to be here with Alyssa. I watch the show every Sunday, at least little bits and pieces, always wondering when she was going to finally invite me on. So excited to be here. I'm Elliot. I work with Alyssa pretty closely, uh, doing a lot of police reform work, and uh, we... Uh, we are the co-chairs of the New York County Lawyers Association Civil Rights and Liberties Committee. So, And we're out, right? And we're out. <laughs> Where can people follow you if they like what you have to say? On a social media, it's not like to your house. Oh, you have a social media? <laughs> All my social media is private, but you can find me on Facebook if you're friends with Alyssa. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, just search my name and I should pop up. On the Googles? On the Googles, yes. Will, will we find you from like a spring break party doing something you don't want the world to see? Uh, hopefully not. I think I scrubbed the internet of all that. Hopefully, knock on wood. Uh, <laughs> Guys, if you're wondering, Elliot has on the most amazing shirt over his African Bantu necklace. Just kidding. That's not a Bantu necklace. <laughs> Is that a dashiki? He, he, yeah. has a sh- he has a shirt that says, we out. Quote credits to Harriet Tubman. It's, I, I, I like it, but I don't like it as much as the Rosa Parks shirt that I saw the other day. Oh, it yeah. It just said, nah. Period. And then it said Rosa Parks. And Rosa Parks did say that. We know she said that in 1996. That's exactly what she said, right, guys? I thought that was Coretta <laughs> Scott King's letter about uh, Jeff Sessions. Nah. <laughs> He's like, oh, you want to pick him? Chill. Don't do that, Poppy. 
So, guys, we have a very interesting show for you. So we're going to start off by talking about the public defender crisis in the United States, but start by sparking off with what's happening in New Orleans, which has the highest incarceration rate in the entire United States of America. When we're done with that, we'll go through the news roundup and give you some of the updates about what's happening in the news, things that make you laugh, cry, curse, flip or table. And then we'll get to the main event. James Comey will be doing a public hearing to talk about what happened while he was in the FBI after, what is it, Labor Day or Memorial Day? I can never remember. Memorial Day. Memorial Day. But before then, we've had a week of crazy, ridiculous, outrageous news with all sorts of things that Donald Trump has done. And we're going to give you an update about what's been happening since James Comey was fired, What who the special, the special prosecutor is, what it means for you, and if we're on our way to seeing Donald Trump being impeached. And if you're wondering what impeachment is during the quickie, Alyssa will not only explain what impeachment is, she will also tell you how the process works. And if you're lucky enough, maybe you can live to see Donald Trump be impeached. And then we get stuck with Mike Pence, which kind of makes me sad. Did you watch well, well, unless he gets locked up, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Um, no, I did not watch SNL. Tell me about it. Um, so they did like the cold opening was basically very similar to the cold opening they did uh, after Hillary lost the election, um, which was instead of having Kate McKinnon sitting at a piano pretending to be Hillary playing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, they had Donald Trump playing, uh, well, Alec Baldwin playing Donald Trump sitting at a piano playing Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. And then as the scene went on, he was joined by uh, all the different cast of characters. So Kellyanne Conway, obviously played by Kate McKinnon. Um, Scarlett Johansson showed up to play Ivanka. Uh, there was a whole bunch of people, you know, that came. I was sad because uh, uh, Melissa McCartney didn't show up to do the Sean Spicer impression for it. But by the end of it, it was like him and like the guy who plays his son. And they were all singing Hallelujah. Um, Hallelujah. <laughs> I like that song. So we will, we will see whether or not uh, we're the ones singing Hallelujah in the next coming months. Well, I mean, I guess so. Some kind of hallelujah. But anyways, guys, we do have to go on a break. And when we come back, it'll be the public defender crisis happening in these United States of America. Until then, it's me and your mama, too. Guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz in the studio with Alyssa Fuchs. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the quarter of Harriet Tubman, E to the Elliot mother-loving Harlem residence. Because I don't know your last name, Elliot. Shields. Elliot Shields. Like <laughs> agents of Shields, but not. You see that, guys? So, if you were just tuning in, you have not missed a thing. We are just getting started on our conversation. It is an action-packed conversation, and we are going to start with public defender crisis in the United States of America. So now, let me give you guys some background that I'm sure Alyssa will have to clean up eventually because I'll do it (laughs) haphazardly. In 1963, the United States Supreme Court established a right to counsel in Gideon v. Wainwright. And... If you're wondering what right to counsel means, if you've ever watched NYPD Blue or New York Undercover or any cop show, they always say you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you. So we all know that thing. We all know that you get these state 
these these um federal like these appointed attorneys if you cannot afford one. I know if I was arrested, I can't afford Alyssa, so I'd probably get you know no, you a, an appointed attorney, and then I had to beg her and probably do a couple of favors, and then maybe she'd give me about sixteen minutes of her time. So. For people like me who cannot afford their own attorneys, you're supposed to be getting these appointed attorneys, public defenders who are supposed to have your back. And what they should be doing is pretty much what any attorney defending someone who is facing a trial is supposed to be doing, representing you, fighting on your behalf, trying to make sure you get the best deal possible. But now, these public attorneys had to be funded somewhere. And when this happened, every state was able to come up with their own plan to fund the public attorneys. Louisiana... Well, because they're the land of the KKK and they love their David Dukes and they love their Jefferson, Jefferson Davises, they responded by doing the bare minimum to comply with the ruling. So pretty much what they did was they said they were only going to fund this public defender space by using finances solely through conviction fees. So whatever fees someone paid when they were being arrested, whatever fines they had to pay to, in order to leave prison, that was the only way that they were going to fund these things, which meant that when this program first started in the 70s, the average public defender was getting paid about $500 in today's money, not even back then money, $500 to represent somebody. And lawyers with misdemeanor cases, they weren't being paid at all. Now, you would think that it just started, it's going to be a little rocky, it's going to get better. It did not, and it has not. It got worse as crime boomed. And as we know, in 1984, the official war on drugs started. And in the 90s, we had a huge boom in arrests, particularly of black and brown people for nonviolent and violent drug offenses, as well as crime-related arrests. Arrest. And it got worse. So caseloads for public defenders jumped from 69,000 in 1986, a good year to be born. High five, Alyssa. That's right, in 1986, it jumped from 69,000 to 114,000 by 1992. During that same period, funding fell from $157 per case to $99 per case. That's right, so they were getting paid crap at $157 per case, which isn't even enough to pay for 30 minutes of Alyssa's time as a lawyer, if we're just being honest here, to $99 per case, which is not enough to get a good game of injustice on PS4 in. It's just that mm -hmm. bad. And each of the last six years, Louisiana's average caseload per, per, attorney, per attorney has been more than twice and as much as five times the public defender standards for that very same state. So if Louisiana says that you should only be seeing about 10 people per like court session and a court session lasts about a week, they were seeing 40 people per court session. That's just how bad it was. And this is them breaking their own standards. And by 2014, public defenders collectively had a budget of just 50 million to provide representation and nearly 250,000 cases or if you're bad at math like I am $200 per case that's right so for each person you had $200 that's what was expensed towards them to help with their trial do you want to know what that adds up to about seven minutes per person that you were going to have with a public defender which means if you were wrongly convicted of something and you needed a good lawyer to get the evidence together so you can get out you had about seven minutes of a public defender's time to actually build your case and guess what a lot of times, they didn't know your name, you didn't see them until the hearing, or in one case in New Orleans court, the public defender actually FaceTimed in and asked the defendant if he wanted to plead guilty, and that was the first time he heard from him. Literally, the first time he heard from him. So two years later, in, in the spring of 2016, districts were so overburdened that 33 out of 42 public defender offices across the state had begun refusing to accept certain new clients, leading to a class action lawsuit. 
And if you're unclear about what that means, that means there were so many people that needed public defenders but so little funding that they just said, you know what, we can't do it. We just cannot do it. And this is a serious problem in New Orleans, but it's not just New Orleans. It's across the United States. Across the United States, 28% of states exclusively use public defender programs to provide indigenous counsel. That means that free counsel for people who cannot afford it. In 1990, state and local governments spent approximately $1.3 billion on public legal counsel for both criminal and civil proceedings. Meanwhile, it was double that amount for police task force, for district attorneys, and for the and for fattening up the prison system. We are having a huge, huge crisis. And today, instead of just ringing out a bunch of stats to you, I have two civil rights lawyers in the room. I have myself and I have all of you guys listening. And we are going to unpack this problem right here. And since we don't have a guest, the best way we're going to do it is by having a very open and honest conversation. Now, before we do that, I know, Alyssa, I said a lot. I want to give you a chance to clarify anything if I missed anything. I know. I got to I gotta go back and try and find out where... No, no. I mean, think you did a really good job of explaining it. Um, obviously, I just wanted to, you know, I'll add some to it and just make one, one correction which is you talked about the fact if you were wrongfully convicted, um, you said, and then you don't get time with the lawyer. So it's actually, I should clarify that a little bit because most of the people we're talking about, they're not being, they're, they may end up being wrongfully convicted because of the fact that they don't have adequate representation from counsel. Usually in a situation where you already are wrongfully convicted, then you're no longer looking for a public defender to represent you. You are looking for an appellate attorney. Sometimes there are some public defenders that do do appellate cases and bring appeals on behalf of people that can't afford an appellate lawyer. But most of the time what we're talking about is not people who are already wrongfully convicted who are trying to bring an appeal. We're talking about people that are facing charges in a lot of cases for low-level crimes and they need an attorney to be able to adequately represent them, to investigate their case, to prove in some cases that they did not commit the crime. And when the system is so overwhelmed like it is right now, then you get into a situation where the lawyer does not have the time or the resources to go out and do an investigation in order to prove that you are potentially innocent or not guilty of this crime. And so that's a big part of the of the problem that we have going on right now. Thank you very much for that. Guys, if you are just tuning in and you have a question or a comment, you have multiple ways to communicate with us. You can call us at 212-650-6903. Again, that is 212-650-6903. Or you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. If that's not your style, we're on Facebook Live. You can leave a comment under my stream. You can leave a comment under Alyssa's stream, and we will read them as soon as possible. And of course, as always, politically preposterous, we are waiting to hear your voice. So let us know what you think. Elliot, I want to bring you into this conversation. So I, obviously, I know you're not a public defender, but hearing these stats, as a lawyer, could you just tell me what it would look like to, to adequately defend somebody as finance-wise? Financially, that's one of the biggest problems with the public defender system right now. You know, I have clients all the time come to me and say, listen, I talk to my public defender all the time. I'm sorry, Ella, just speak, just move the mic forward some. Thank you. I have clients come to me all the time and say, listen, my public defender doesn't listen to me. My public defender just wants me to take a deal. You know, they're not trying to listen to the evidence in my case. They're not trying to conduct any type of investigation. All they're trying to do is go forward and make a deal that gets me either the least prison time possible or plead to some kind of fee. And on the whole, I need to make clear, I think that most of the public defenders that I've interacted with do a great job in New York State, especially. You know, I do a lot of work uh, 
for people that have been abused by the police in New York City and upstate in Rochester, New York. And on the whole, all those public defenders are great resources for me. We work together closely, and you know I think that they're committed to the system. But the biggest problem is this lack of resources, which led to a class action settlement um, in a in a lawsuit brought by the New York Civil Liberties Union last year. Really? Or not last year. It was uh, 2014. And in a huge disappointing decision earlier this year to fund the public defender system in New York State, Andrew Cuomo vetoed a bill that would have extended the settlement that was uh, only for five counties in New York State that the New York Civil Liberties Union specifically targeted um, because they had the worst funding. In New York State, basically, let me back up and explain. In New York State, the way that public defenders are funded is through the counties. And so in upstate, that can be an especially difficult thing with these poor counties in central and northern New York, western New York. And so those there were five specific counties in this lawsuit that um, the New York Civil Liberties Union sued on behalf of. And it led to a settlement where they agreed to systemic reforms to provide much more funding, basically. And as part of the budget that was being negotiated for last year, um, the state, uh, you know, the legislature came up with a plan. They negotiated with Andrew Cuomo's office, and they were on the cusp of reaching a deal to provide adequate funding across the state for all different counties. And at the very last second, Andrew Cuomo vetoed that bill. Wow. So, Alyssa, you want to um, add on to that? Uh, yeah, no, no, no. I Actually, yeah, that's exactly sort of what I wanted to say, which is the majority of public defenders that I know are good, hardworking people. I hear from a lot of people that call my office, as I'm sure does Elliot, that say, you know, my public defender said I should plead guilty, my public defender this, that. And, you know, in, and in some of those cases, the public defender is telling these people to plead guilty because it really is the best deal, because the evidence actually shows that they may be guilty. And so the deal may be a better way for them to avoid jail time. That said, there are is there's a large number of people who are saying, I am not guilty. Mm -hmm. I would like my public defender to really look into this for me. And yet my public defender is basically telling me to plead guilty because this is a deal where I am not going to end up with a criminal record and I'm not going to end up having to go to jail and I might have to pay a fine. But what these people are saying is, but I'm not guilty and I want a lawyer that's actually going to look into this for me. And so it's like when you hire a private attorney like me and you say, I didn't do it and there's video cameras in this area that may show that I didn't do it. And I have the time and the resources because you know, you're paying a private lawyer a lot of money to be able to go up and conduct an investigation. Or if I can't personally conduct an investigation, to hire a private investigator to go up, to talk to witnesses, to look at videos, to take photographs in an area. Public defender's offices, these pe these people, they're people who really want to be doing good work. Every public defender I know got into this for the most part, because they really want to be doing good work. But when you are carrying 80, 90, 100 cases at the same time, you cannot devote the time and energy and resources to looking into some of these things. And so it ends up in a situation where if they're offering a client a non-criminal civil disposition, such as plead guilty to disorderly conduct, which is a violation, it's not a crime, a lot of times the public defender will say, you know what, take the deal, because you're not going to go to jail, you'll pay a fine, it's all said and done. But at the other side of that is, then the 
these people who otherwise who want to sue the police department down the road for police misconduct and bring a civil rights lawsuit if you plead guilty to a crime then you lose your ability in most circumstances to sue the police department for the police department misconduct so it then compounds the problem um, but just also go getting back around to New Orleans for a second and some of these southern states this thing you talked about at the very beginning the way they're funding the public defender system is part of what is creating the problem is because when you're using the fines and fees to try and adequately fund your public defender system and you're now arresting for the most part poor people of color that cannot necessarily pay the fines and fees then you're going to end up in a cash strap system but really what this goes back to is taxes right in so many of these southern states like you look at kansas they don't want to raise taxes all they want to do is cut 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 well guess what if you cut taxes then you're not going to have the money to pay for public defenders and then you look at a state like kansas they have also been sued for not providing adequate representation under the constitution because at the end of the day what we're really talking about is the constitution it is constitutional rights. And so then there's a whole level of hypocrisy on the right. Let's, let's take a, yeah, you're covering which a lot we of can get to well, later on in the segment. <laughs> let's slow down. So Alyssa just gave us a mouthful. And what I want to do is contextualize some of that stuff with examples from other states. So in Missouri, for example, where the defender's office is funded entirely at the state level, Governor Jay Nixon repeatedly blocked the passage. He's a Democratic governor, by the way repeatedly blocked the passage of state legislation to cap defenders' workloads and increase their funding. Most recently, in July of 2017, pardon me, of 2016, Nixon withheld $3.5 million of a relief fund approved by the state legislators to hire additional staff. As a result, the Missouri system is chronically overburdened, and according to a 2014 study, the majority of the people who are overburdened by these unfair convictions and by the lack of representation, of course, no surprise here, black and brown people. But I want to take a step back because you both have been really defensive of public defenders. If it's not their fault, then why? Like, what is what is the problem? It's it's systemic. The problem is systemic, and the problem is money. Um, just like we see with anything else. and But also there's more than just systemic problems within the public defender system. I mean, in New York, there's a case cap law. These lawyers cannot carry more than 80 cases at one time. Well, Before one that, second, they were second. carrying up to 120 cases. One second, 80 cases. What is 80 cases at one time? What does that look like? I mean, 80 people that you are representing at once. At that once? Eight, at, at once. Is that You feasible? have 80 clients. Yeah, I mean, I think 80 clients, put it this way, I represent up to about 150 clients in civil wow. rights cases at one time. However, these are not, these are civil cases. Yeah. So it's, they're a little different. And when you're looking at it, the end of the day in a civil case is money, right? If we win, the client gets paid for their um, violation of their civil rights. What we're looking at in a criminal case is not money. We're talking about whether or not somebody's going to go to jail. We're talking about whether somebody's going to be convicted of a crime we're talking about in some cases whether or not you could have somebody who says you know I am being held and wrongfully identified um, as the person who committed this very, very serious crime. In fact, I had a client that I represented at one point that was spent five and a half years in prison for a crime that he did not commit. And, you know, he had a public defender the whole time and the public defender was doing a trying to do a really good job to investigate this, to prove that he was not, in fact, the person who committed this crime. But nonetheless, the public defender could not have done the kind of job that a private lawyer who had more time and resources to, to look into it was. But you asked what the problem is, and I want to at least answer your question. The problem is an overburdened system. Part of that is due to broken windows policing, which is the constant 
criminalization and mass incarceration of black and brown people for low-level offenses. Part of the issue is also the fact that we don't deal with the underlying issues, which is poverty, right? Homelessness, these other things that are not criminal justice issues. They're issues like that we need to be looking into about um, who is, has access to other resources. Because at the end of the day, if people are going to jail for low-level offenses, like jumping a turnstile, that's somebody that's jumping a turnstile because they can't afford the fare. Then we really need to be looking at solving the problem of poverty in order to help solve the problem of criminal justice reform. That was a mouthful and a lot of information. I hope you guys got all that. We're going to go on a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation of the public defender crisis in the United States of America. This is Stanley Fritz, Alyssa Fuchs, and Elliot. I forgot your last name again. Shields. 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 We'll be right back. Johnny said books ain't cool. This is Stanley Free. I can't do it. I was trying to rhyme to this song, but my flow game is not on point. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. Shout out to Antoinette for listening to the show. Shout out to um, Andre C. Hatchett and, of course, Julian Hoffman for listening. Mark Webster, everyone who's listening on my stream. And if you are just tuning in, we are talking about the public defender crisis happening right now in America, specifically in New Orleans, Missouri, Kentucky, and any other place that thought it was a good idea to make America great again, but also in New York. Which I mean, but does that surprise you, the states that you just listed? Well, it, it doesn't surprise me, but it really is shocking how bad it actually is. So take, for instance, guys, Kentucky, for example. Kentucky defendants took an average of 448 cases in the past year. That's 54% above recommended national standards. Attorneys take on 11% more cases than they did a decade ago, and in areas such as Louisville, now take close to double the national standard. The department received 49 million dollars last year that's less than 0.5 percent of the overall state budget so listen i think we all agree that if someone commits a crime they have to go to jail if someone does something wrong and they're guilty they have to suffer the consequences but we also agree and we agreed to this years ago that everyone should have a fair and speedy trial it looks like that is not happening at all and the people who could be having an impact on this are not doing it so earlier you talked about the lawsuit from the aclu elliot and you talked about governor cuomo pretty much shooting down that budget how does something something like that happen yes yeah, so the uh the lawsuit was actually brought by the new york civil liberties union um and it was called a uh, harrell herring uh versus the state of new york and um the settlement occurred in 2014 and basically, uh, it represented the, the New York Civil Liberties Union brought this lawsuit on behalf of five counties in central and upstate New York. Um, and, you know, the, the claims in the lawsuit were basically that they were underfunded in these counties. In comparison to the rest of the counties in the state, they, were, they received far less funding. And funding is a really important thing, not only for, you know, reducing caseloads, but like Alyssa said, these people have so many cases. A lot of them are simple. A lot of them, you know, there will be maybe a video that shows the defendant was uh, clearly not at the location where they said they were. And maybe they tell their public defender that. But maybe they don't have the funding to hire an investigator to go to the store where they were working that night when they were accused of committing some crime. In that video, if they had uh, an investigator to go there and get that video to prove that they were innocent, they would spend less time in jail, you know, and these lead to big problems. Now, the, uh, the, the governor said when he vetoed this bill, look, this is going to cost $600 million, $800 million, and it's going to burden taxpayers. Well, 
that's very short-sighted in my view and in the view of a lot of experts in this area because what's going to happen, right? Let's say this person gets convicted. They go to jail. They spend five years in jail. And then suddenly uh, they hire a post-conviction attorney to take up their case. Well, they get that video, and then their conviction gets overturned, and then they bring a lawsuit against the state. They might get $10, $12 million or something. You know, these lawsuits happen. And if it, with the proliferation of video evidence, especially these days, um, that's one of the things that's really helped people prove their claims, prove that they were innocent. But you know what? You need adequate funding for public defenders to be able to take their time, go and gather this evidence to prove their client's innocence. And, you know, that's a, that's a very good point, Elliot. And I also want to just like paint a picture for financially how this is impacting people. In New York State, it costs on average $60,000 to house a prison inmate. So if you have someone that didn't have an adequate def public defender because they were overburdened or they were bad at their job or they were busy or they didn't have an appropriate resources and they get significant jail time, you're averaging at least $60,000 of tax dollars that could go somewhere else. So when Governor Cuomo says we don't have the money, You'd probably save money on the on, a, on the back end by the, the amount of people who are not now spending sixty thousand dollars each for the crimes that they didn't commit in the system. But with saying that, I want to throw it to Alyssa because I know Alyssa wants to add to this. Right. I mean, and here's the other thing which we haven't really discussed all that much, which is what is the practical impact of this upon people who are facing charges? Yes, we've talked about the fact that their attorneys don't have enough money or resources to investigate and that could possibly lead to a wrongful conviction. But just in terms of the fact that people like the New Orleans Public Defender's Office or the Baton Rouge Public Defender's Office have to turn away cases and say, we cannot take on representation of these clients at this time leads to a situation where one of two things happens. Number one is if you're out, meaning if bail has not been set on you and you are fighting your case from the outside, then you may go to court and they say, we're sorry, we don't have a lawyer for you right now. So you're going to have to come back to court in a few months. So what that means is if you're out, you have these charges hanging over your heads, which is if you're trying to apply for a job, this case can come up that you have an open pending criminal case. The job may not hire you. If you are applying for other types of benefits, you may not be eligible for them because you have an open pending case. So there's many um, things that you could encounter um, aside from the fact that you have this open case hanging over your head for many, many months uh, until the point where the court may be able to appoint you an attorney. But what's worse is the people who are in. And what I mean by that is people who are having bail set on them, who cannot afford bail, who are saying, I do not want to plead guilty to a crime because I did not commit this crime. And so what they're essentially being told is, well, you know, if you plead guilty today, then you can walk out of jail tomorrow um, and that you don't. But if you don't plead guilty and you want to fight this case and you say you're innocent, well, we don't have a lawyer for you right now. So you're going to sit in jail and you can't raise any arguments about speedy trial because the delay is not being caused by the prosecutor. It's being caused by the court system. And you could literally sit around in jail for three or four months just waiting to go to court, waiting for an attorney to be assigned to your case, which is months and months that you're sitting around in jail. And so what that ends up is a situation where people are inclined to plead guilty, even when they're not guilty just so that they can get out of jail because they're like, well, you know, I've been sitting around in jail for, for two years and if I would have been convicted of this crime, I only would have done six months in jail. So why am I sitting in jail for two years trying to fight this case um, and, and I'm not getting to go to court and I'm not getting a lawyer? And the fact of the matter is, so then you have a situation where lots and lots of innocent people plead guilty simply because they want to get out of jail. Now, obviously we could talk about bail reform for days and we have talked about bail reform on previous shows because the bail issue is 
is a big part of this. But the fact of the matter is, is if we hired more public defenders, then people would not be sitting as lo- in jail as long and they would be not be so inclined to plead guilty to crimes they did not commit because they would have more access to a lawyer. Well, is it just a problem of not enough public defenders or is it a problem of how we're arresting people? Because what I've noticed you guys have mentioned is a lot of people are getting arrested on these smaller crimes and then they go there and they're being criminalized for things like um, public drinking or or, um, open intoxication or public urination. And they're being thrown in jail for this. Do we need to restructure the way that we're we're punishing or penalizing people for things? Uh, yes, I mean, listen, it's a it's a dual problem because the people who are sitting in jail fighting a case usually they're not there for a low level offense, right? So if you're caught for urinating on the street or low level marijuana, you're more likely than not if you're gonna or you if it's alleged that you did that, but you're saying I did not pee on the street or I did not have marijuana, that's something more likely than not you're gonna be released on your own recognizance. You're gonna be fighting that from the outside. Yeah. Um. So you know, but you're also more likely to plead guilty when the public defender shows up and says, listen, you know, do you want to come back to court um, several times? I, I don't know how much time I'm going to have to look into your case, but they're offering you a disorderly conduct today that you could literally walk out of here and not come back, pay a fine. So it works in both ways, um, you know, and it's a, it's definitely a dual problem. It's not mutually exclusive one or the other. I want to bring Elliot back into the conversation because we're talking about New York and we're talking about these counties that were underfunded and we're talking about Governor Cuomo and his disinterest in trying to find additional funding for these for, 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 for these public defenders is there a space or is there a moment where we will be able to build enough support to get the appropriate funding or have we reached a cap in New York where it's going to be what it is you know I think that it's very important that we continue to put pressure on our public officials now last year there was a bipartisan bill passed by both houses of the state legislature the state legislature agreed we need more funding we need to expand the protections of this Harrell herring settlement to all counties in New York State so that all people have adequate funding and adequate legal counsel when they're facing years in prison now the governor said you know after months of back and forth negotiations at the very last second he vetoed the bill we need to make it clear to all of our public officials and especially Governor Cuomo that that's unacceptable that we need to provide adequate protection for everybody in New York, not just the people in these five counties. And, so, yeah, go ahead. That's what just want to, for those of you who are listening, if you have a question or a comment, or you just want to say hi, the number is 212-650-6903. Again, the number is 212-650-6903. You can also tweet at us at BeHeard underscore radio, or, of course, Facebook Live comments on my stream. Hi, Brandy, I'm waving back at you. Or on Alyssa's stream, do you have any shout-outs, Alyssa? We have Jackie. Oh God! Your, Go away, your best Jackie. Jackie. Go away, Jackie. <laughs> and of oh, course, you love guys, Jackie. there's always a politically preposterous. And as you know, we've been having this conversation now. When we, so we talked about the legislative process. We talked about some of the ways that it affects people and how it can hurt them. How people in New Orleans are literally just pleading guilty because they cannot get a public defender. They'll go through several hearings and not see a public defender, and the case cannot be thrown out. We talked about New York State, where. Governor Cuomo has pretty much rejected additional funding for public defenders and the same thing happening in Missouri and in Kentucky as well. This sounds like a huge crisis, but when we're talking about criminal justice reform, this is not a topic that gets a lot of attention, if we're just being honest with ourselves. We talked about raise the age. We're even starting to talk about um, bail reform, and we're talking about trying like closing Rikers Island in New York, New York State. Rikers Island is going to be closed in the next 10 years, allegedly. Why hasn't something allegedly. like public defenders where that's literally, as far as I understand it, if someone's arrested 
the first person they're going to speak to, if not the cops, is their public defender. And what we're seeing here is that people literally who cannot afford lawyers are getting public defenders who they're seeing on average for seven minutes, if even that. Why aren't more people mad about this or talking about this? Why? Because this is an issue that is, for the most part, affecting poor, pe poor people of color. And like any other issue that affects poor people of color, it takes a long time to get people interested in thinking about it for some reason. Actually, we know the reason. Um, you know, Stanley, you could speak on that for days, and we could both speak on that for days. And so that's a real reason why. I mean, look, it's like the heroin crisis, right? People of color have been decimated by the heroin crisis since the 70s, but it wasn't until white people from the middle class from suburbia started dying of heroin overdoses that people started really talking about it. Well, it's the same kind of issue. So until, until it becomes an issue, issue that starts affecting more white people, then don't expect anybody to care about it unless they're people like us that actually do care about it, right? When do we get to a point where it's not just so black, black and white where we just care about an issue because we care about an issue? I'm going to throw this one to Elliot first. I'm sorry, say it again. When do we get to a point where it's not just we only care about an issue when it's affecting white people and we care about the issue because it's affecting someone? You don't, I mean, <laughs> I know. I like, Loaded question. I, I mean, I, I like to say that it's going to happen when we all start to uh, make love enough to people of other races that we all look the same. You know, <laughs> this is not. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got an honest answer. <laughs> you know, and that's the honest answer that I got for you. Yeah, I mean, it's all uh, so swipe. <laughs> you got to you, you take it back to the, the history in this country. You know, what's the difference between society in America and Western Europe. Well, Western Europe had feudalism, America had slavery. And so race from the beginning of our country has always been a fundamental issue in the minds of everybody, and especially white people who are afraid of losing their power over everyone else. And I think that we now are seeing the, uh, you know, that that mindset taken over the federal government of our country. And, you know, so it's a real problem. And we just need to keep pushing back. We need to keep pushing the message that everybody has equal rights under our Constitution. Everybody needs to, you know, stand up for our brothers and sisters. We're all the same. Show the same love for everybody. And we're all black when the lights we go need, out. Yeah, we need to. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, w w when is. When it, when are these issues gonna get gonna get more support when it's not just affecting white people, you know, I mean that's what Alyssa and I are trying to do with our careers. We're trying to push this uh, this message that look, we need more allies uh, to come out from, you know, and say look, these issues matter. Yeah. No matter who it's affecting, and uh. It's a really it's a tough question. I mean, you know, what what gets the media's attention and things? No, I, I definitely hear you. And I want to just kind of like to sh to show you just how much this this country and the system is still in love with racism. And I won't let us close it out. In New Orleans, in the state offices and the state buildings, you know who does like the kitchen work and who are the janitors? The prisoners. Prisoners. The entire state office and the state system is run by prisoners, and even the governor's well, mansion. Look at look at the Thirteenth Amendment, right? What's yeah. the exception 13th. to the Thirteenth Amendment, which is prison. that there should be no slavery except if you're in prison, right? And who's the majority of people that are filling up our prisons? People of color. So you know, we, we for all intents and purposes, we've outlawed slavery in this country, but for the fact that you're in prison, and then we use the criminal justice system to criminalize people of color um, in order to keep them oppressed. And so until we end this system 
system of white suppress white supremacy and oppression, we're always going to have these problems. So, Alyssa, you already going, so close it out. Uh, I mean, listen, where I want to really end is this, which is we constantly hear people, and especially conservative people, talking about the Constitution. They complained about the fact that they felt that Barack Obama did not care about the Constitution. They complain all the time about the fact that liberals don't care about the Constitution. But at the end of the day, it's these people that are the biggest hypocrites when it comes to the Constitution. The Constitution of the United States of America states in the Sixth Amendment that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy trial and a public trial by an impartial jury of the state and a district where the crime shall have been committed, where the district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and the cause of the accusation, to be confronted with witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have, and here's the important part, the assistance of counsel for his defense. And so if we are going to continue to not adequately fund our public public defender system, then we are depriving people of this right that they have under the Constitution. And let me remind you that you may say, well, if I didn't do anything wrong, then I don't have to anything to worry about, which is a constant reframe we hear all the time from people and specifically white people who seem to think that just because they're not doing anything wrong means that they're not going to be criminalized for something. Well, guess what? You may not think that you are going to be criminalized for everything if you are not doing anything wrong. But at the end of the day, it is not you who decides whether or not you are doing anything wrong. It is the government that decides whether you're doing something wrong. And so the minute that you say that this right is not important is the minute that when it happens to you, you're going to be looking, going, well, I need a lawyer too. And guess what? If there's no funding, then there's going to be no lawyer too. So always keep in mind that you are the next person that is going to be affected by this. And that just because it's not affecting you now does not mean it's not going to affect you in the future. And so you you need to stand up for these constitutional rights as if they were your own rights on the line, even if it is not currently affecting you, because it may not be you now, but one day it could be you, and you want those same rights to be there for you. All right, guys, let's just set it all. When we come back, it's News Roundup. This is Stanley Fritz on Let Your Voice Be Heard. I'm wearing my All Lives Matter sweatshirt, it is the word. I just got a dark Caesar with the beard shaped up also. And I am so beautiful. Mm, I should have been a singer. We oh, are look, back Stanley on Stanley got a haircut this week before he came to the show. He actually That's looks right. groomed. You know what? I do look groomed today. Fresh to death. Fresh to mother-loving What death. happened? What, Marilyn. Shout no, out to Marilyn. No, no. I've, I've been trying to get a haircut for two weeks, but I couldn't get my barber because he's always like full. And also, he doesn't speak English well. So Real quick, how how many years you been with your barber? Man, I actually, he's new. We've only been together for a year now. My old barber got arrested. Oh, no. So <laughs> he's, he's, yeah, yeah, man, I'm loyal. I got seven years with my boy Nelson. You see? Neighborhood neighborhood cut and shave down in the West Village. You Shout see? out to Nelson. Nelson's like, that's right, shout me out. My, this barber over here, like I, since I've been to Harlem, I've had a new level of like haircut treatment because not only do they cut your hair, they use a razor, then they put like the, the warm towel oh, on your yeah. face, and like all. It's it's amazing, and it's only fifteen dollars, so I will happily take that. But anyways, guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on ninety point three FM WHCR, the Voice of Harlem. If you just tuned in, we literally finished a conversation about public defenders about three and a half minutes ago, and now we are up to one of my favorite parts of the show. It is called the news roundup where we talk about our favorite news stories throughout the week things that made you laugh cry curse or even flip a table and if you're wondering who i'm having this conversation with it is with Alyssa fuchs and my boy elliot mother loving elliot holding it down in the streets and guys i want to start off this news roundup conversation on something just slightly 
easier to take because we have a lot of heavy politics. But the Cleveland Cavaliers destroyed the Boston Celtics again, and now they have a 2-0 lead, and the Boston Celtics star player Isaiah Thomas is out for the playoffs. With, like something was wrong with his hip. And along with that, the um, Golden State Warriors just demolished the Spurs yesterday, and they have a 3-0 series lead. And it looks like everything is pointing towards Cavs Warriors Part 3. Are you excited about this? No, not at all. I, I don't like basketball. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Alyssa doesn't like the basketball. I don't like basketball. I don't know anything about basketball, but the Yankees are playing very well. Oh, tell me more, white woman. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, listen, lots of people like baseball. Baseball yeah, is not but... that white. Really? I mean, <laughs> it, as far as m- most sports go, the hockey is the whitest sport. Oh, yeah. By far. Well, I don't really want to watch remember, a game you know, where a bunch of white players hit a black ball. Listen, you remember <laughs> la- last year there was a guy named Tony X, um, no. and he was this guy. He's a, he's a black guy. He's from St. Louis, mm-hmm. and he wanted to watch, I think, basketball, and he went to go turn on a basketball game, and instead the St. Louis Blues was on, and he tweeted out, why didn't anybody tell me about hockey? Oh, you mean yeah. people are just hitting each other? You could punch somebody in the face in this game? Yeah, and you just that. go to the penalty box? He's like, this is the best part ever. And then he was like, white people have been hiding this sport <laughs> from black people. He was like, why don't black people know about hockey? Because uh, we would dominate it probably. <laughs> <laughs> no, there are, and there are some black players in the NHL yeah. now, but for a long time, it was like the whitest sport ever. Well, yeah, because like hockey's expensive. It's expensive. So that's, that's the thing. I learned how to skate when I was six, and I said, I'm going to be a hockey player because I saw Mighty Ducks. And then I was like, Great where's movie. the hockey teams? And they said, what the hell are you talking about? What's hockey? This is East New York, Brooklyn. We'll go play basketball <laughs> or sell dope. So that, those are my two options. But just kidding, guys. So now let's switch gears and let's talk about some news stories throughout the week. So as you guys may or may not know, Hillary Clinton launched her own pack onward. And the goal is to be endorsing and supporting candidates for the quote-unquote progressive movement. I have a lot of Bernie friends and a lot of Hillary haters who are not happy about this. They think she's just looking for a way to co-opt the movement again. What do you guys think? I actually think that the way she did it was really smart, which is instead of having this political action committee like that potentially supports her personally or even candidates personally, they are putting all this money into other organizations that are basically being run by the grassroots. So, like, for example, one of the organizations that they are supporting is Run for Something. Run for Something is a grassroots organization that was started by young people, millennials, that are trying to encourage other millennials to run for office. Um, There's several other organizations that her political action committee um, is going to be supporting. I think that, you know, we should definitely take the support where we can get it. These, these, as long as um, Hillary's PAC is not going to pressure these candidates into supporting certain policies that Hillary wants them to support, mm-hmm. if they're going to be providing funding to young people and supporting these grassroots organizations with no strings attached, then I think that's a great thing. And by the way, I have a couple of friends that work at Run for Something, so shout out to you guys. We're going to get you guys on the show soon enough, hopefully. By the way, Jamaica Mouse, thank you so much for hopping on Facebook Live. You know I love you. You're beautiful. You're awesome. You're intelligent. Keep going. So, guys, let's talk about some other things. What else has popped up in the news that has kind of caught your eye? So, are you guys hearing now Michelle Obama called what Donald Trump is doing with taking away free lunch from kids despicable? It's absolutely despicable. My wife is a nutrition or a dietitian. Let me Come get on, that hold straight. On, Elliot, get it right. Oh, she would she would be very <laughs> angry with me if she caught that slip. So, honey, I hope you're not listening. Uh, but you know, nutrition for children mm-hmm. is one of the most important things. I mean, these programs have been shown to increase learning efficiency, children's attention spans in school. I mean. If you're sitting there in school with an empty stomach growling, 
there's not there one thing that you can focus on. When am I going to get some food? Yeah. You can't focus on school. You can't focus on anything the teacher's saying. All you're thinking about is how hungry you are. And it's I 100% agree with Michelle Obama, and I hope that she keeps coming out in public and advocating against this terrible policy of the Trump administration. The yeah, Trump administration is going pretty crazy. This is not the only thing they've done. So just earlier this week, it w- the, the Trump administration's education plan was leaked, and they want to get rid of the student loan forgiveness program, particularly the program that allows forgiveness for teachers. So teachers will get student loan forgiveness after 10 years and paying off their loans consistently. Well, for- also public interest lawyers like uh, public defenders. And yeah. and it, it goes across the different it, – it's not just teachers, not just lawyers. Not it goes profit. to doctors. Anybody in not-for-profit, I was talking to my, one of my best friends the other day. He's a, uh, he's a physical therapist. He works in a low-income community. They would cut his funding, too. And, you know, these people rely on these programs. They give up the opportunity to make so much more money working in the private interest. And instead, they, they give up their time. They give up years of their lives to dedicate to helping poor people. And... You know what? We need those people. This increase, this is a function of our democracy that is completely necessary. And we get rid of this program, all these people are going to be worse off. Why the hell are they getting rid of the program, though? That's what I, that's what I don't I mean, understand. Well, so here's what we don't know yet. And obviously, we're going to have to wait and see whether or not they're getting the pro- rid of the program prospectively only, meaning they're getting rid of the program for anybody that wants to enroll in it now, or whether everybody who's already relied on the fact, and potentially some people who have already worked nine out of the ten years in public interest, whether or not they're going to be eligible for loan forgiveness after... Like Elliot said, turning down the opportunity to work in the private sector and make a whole lot more money. I mean, we're talking about the fact that we have to understand why this program was created to begin with. The program was created to begin with because not enough people were going into the public sector. Not enough people wanted to do public interest work. So you had a situation where most people wanted to graduate from law school, medical school, college, and they wanted to enter the private sector because that's where the money was and they wanted to be able to make money. And so um, in order to encourage people to go into the public sector, The government said, well, you know what, if you go into public interest work and you do this public interest work for 10 years consecutively, then we will wipe the rest of your loans. And so for some people, um, they did this because, you know, they... They always wanted to be public interest people, like myself, for example. Um, Although, actually, I don't work in public interest, uh, which is a weird thing, because even though I do sort of kind of do public interest work, Mm -hmm. I actually work in private practice. Um, But all these people... Some people who are not otherwise inclined to go into the public sector decided, you know what, I'm going to forfeit the right to make a lot of money working in the private sector. I'm going to donate my time and my energy to go into the public sector to help poor people with the understanding that after 10 years, my loans are going to be wiped. And now they're turning around going, wait, what? Like, I I may have put in nine years. I'm coming up on the 10th year. And now you're telling me that all this time that I could have been working in the private sector um, that I chose not to. It seems like they're punishing people for doing good work. And, and, you know. You're right. We don't know how they're going to enroll, implement this, but it doesn't even matter because they're punishing people who are trying to do good work. And the minute you start making it harder to do to give back to the community is the minute that people stop giving back to the community as much. And we also know that student loan debt is a serious problem in this country. Over $1.2 trillion worth of student loan debt exists in this country right now. So if there's a program that was helping to assuage some of that, it doesn't make sense to get rid of it. Alyssa? Yeah, no. And, you know, we want to talk about the impact of that student loan debt. People, A lot of people 
people say, oh, well, how does that, that doesn't affect me, right? I don't have any student loan debt, um, obviously, and like not to sound ageist, usually this is people that are not millennials, right? Um, that occupy some other area, uh, um, you know, some other age bracket other than millennials. But here's the thing, it strains everybody. It puts a strain on our entire economy. When young people cannot buy homes, when young people cannot afford to spend money, then that is less money being put back into the economy. So when a young person, um, a millennial, can buy a home, um, then they take out a mortgage. That obviously helps create jobs for people in the banking services. When they decide to have a family, um, that then they go out and they spend money, they put more money back into the economy. When young people are not buying homes and not putting money into the economy, that affects everybody. That creates economic stagnation across all economic lines for all age groups of all people. So this is not a situation where you could just be like, well, I'm not a millennial. I don't have student loan debt. Doesn't affect me because it affects everybody. It does affect everyone. And something that does affect everyone, whether you realize it or not, and it's connected to the conversation we were having earlier today, is with Jeff Sessions. So in case you guys did not know, Jeff Sessions, local Sith Lord and horrible human being, also a person that said that he hate, the only thing he doesn't like about the KKK is that they smoke weed, just came out and did something to prove that he is once again a horrible human being and someone who does not have any business being the United States Attorney General. That's right. So... What did he do? Well, he pretty much informed federal prosecutors that they should go back to the ways of the 90s and look to hit criminal offenders, particularly those with drug offenses, with the harshest charges possible. Now, he says he's doing this to give like these prosecutors more freedom, but actually what he's doing is because is making it harder to have discretion because, as we guys all know, Eric Holder had encouraged prosecutors to, as much as possible, avoid mandatory minimum sentences and use their own discretion. And now... Jeff Sessions is mandating that it absolutely be the first thing that they do. The harshest, the longest, the cruelest ones. And once again, he's saying he's doing this because he feels that we have not been taking the war on drugs seriously. And because of it, crime and drug addiction has exploded. Elliot, I want to bring you to this conversation. Yeah, so, you know, the thing that bothered me the most about Jeff Sessions' statement on this was he said, people that commit drug crimes, it's inherently related to being violent. People that, he said, oh, you can't go out and collect a drug debt by filing a lawsuit in court, so you do it with the barrel of a gun. And drugs and drug drug traffickers, it obviously is just, you know, basically what I'm getting to is he does not cite any evidence for the statements that he makes. And, you know, I think what we really need, it, what the Trump administration is showing here is a lack of faith in science and evidence-based uh, approach to criminal criminal justice reform, drug reform, all of the evidence shows exactly the opposite of what Jeff Sessions is saying. You know, these people don't need to be locked up. That's bad for the community. These people need these people need more investment in their communities, more opportunities. Uh, if somebody's if somebody commits a drug crime, what they need to do is they need opportunities for finding a job for you know endorsing, uh, you know, crime reduction approaches to drugs, um, including, you know, statutory reforms expressly, expressly permit and fund uh, ext- you know, like 
So they need more options. Programs. They need more options. People don't need to be locked up. In no, I, I get you. And, and it seems like instead of looking for more options to help people, he's looking to punish people. So Alyssa, take us home. Well, I mean, listen, this is like the, the theme of that whole meme, which is, uh, you know, Jeff Sessions obviously not didn't actually say this, but the, the, the joke, and it's not a funny joke, it's not like funny ha-ha, is I got so excited to do racism that I did a dang perjury, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, and this is what it's really about. Like, is this is a way to continue to criminalize black and brown people who are it, potentially engaging in low-level criminal activity and in some cases not engaging in criminal activity at all. Now, to address what you were talking about before about Holder, just to give that clarification, which is um, under the mandatory minimum sentencing scheme, um, the mandatory minimums are triggered by the amount of drugs that you are caught with. And so what the Obama administration did essentially was to direct the Department of Justice attorneys not to put the quantity of drugs on the charging documents to say, yes, you were allegedly found with cocaine. But instead of just say, instead of specifically saying it was for example, five kilograms of cocaine, they would just say cocaine. And by not including that information about the weight on the charging documents, they were able to sometimes avoid triggering the mandatory minimums. Because at the end of the day, weight doesn't necessarily tell somebody your involvement in this criminal enterprise. You could be somebody who drove one time because somebody, a friend of yours came and said, hey, can you drive this truck from point A to point B? And you made one trip and you got caught with 30 kilos of cocaine, but you're like this low-level guy on the totem pole. You're not the kingpin at the top. You're not a lieutenant or a sergeant in this drug operation. You literally engaged in one-time activity. Or so, maybe you were going on a bender. Right. So by leaving this information off, the Obama administration was able to recognize who was actually the real criminals and go after them and who was somebody who maybe was a drug addict who engaged in criminal activity once or twice to maybe feed their habit, but was not the real high level person that they were looking for. And so that allowed them to reduce the number of people that were in prison um, and to reduce the amount of time people were spending in prison. And now Jeff Sessions wants to go back essentially to the old war on drugs, which is the old let's criminalize everybody and lock everybody up for a long time and throw away the key. Well, here's what we know about that. What, one, it doesn't really work. Two, it increases mass incarceration without any real effect um, on lowering crime. Three, right now the crime rate is actually the lowest that it's almost ever been. In fact, and police killings are down at their lowest level ever, despite this rhetoric that there's this so-called war on cops, which, by the way, doesn't exist. And so what we're getting at is a situation where the only thing that you can chalk this up to is racism and I don't want to chalk everything racism. up to racism but uh, you know like there's racism. no other explanation for this because there's no evidence to prove that this actually works and there's actually evidence to prove the opposite of that it's always racism guys we'll listen to Alyssa we're going on a quick break when we come back we'll talk about more racism just kidding Donald Trump oh I guess it is racism You know too many Popeyes listening. Yeah, I know where all the Popeyes are. There's a Popeyes in Chinatown. There's a Popeyes wait, 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 in stop. Times Square. There's a Popeyes in Chinatown? Yeah, and it's got Chinese lettering on it. You didn't know this? What? We, we got to go to the Popeyes. We got to go on a Popeyes eating tour mm. to see who has the best one. Because you ain't never had no chicken until you had a $5 box worth of chicken. You know, listen, I honestly <laughs> will say that I had Popeyes in Louisiana, although I had some other really good fried chicken in Louisiana, too. And Popeyes down there is way better than it is up here. Well, yeah, because like they're using like, Louisiana seasoning. 
Louisiana Fast. Louisiana Fast. Hey, hey, this is something, something from Popeye Chicken. As we like rep the corporate conglomerate chicken right now. Oh, God. Shout yeah. out to small businesses in Harlem that are doing the real good fried chicken. Shout out to Teresa I'm... in apartment 4C who makes fried chicken every Sunday and sells it. I love you, Teresa. <laughs> I'm going to come see you today after the show. But anyways, guys, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, Jamie, Brittany, thank you. We have just finished the news roundup. We talked about a couple of news stories. One story we forgot about was how a millionaire said that millennials are broke and can't buy houses because they waste their money on avocado toast. I didn't know you could turn avocado into toast, but whatever. <laughs> so he Should have been in my apartment this morning. <laughs> he seems to think that millennials are just wasting their money on things that they, that they don't need and going broke for it. Millennials are not going broke. And if they were, maybe they'd be president because you know who is president and is also going broke all the time? John Donald J. Trump. That's right. The president of the United States of America, Donald Trump, the man who was filed for bankruptcy five times, the man who got a $24 million quote unquote loan from his papa, the man who said that he liked to grab women by the vagina, the man that can't seem to speak in complete sentences has finally, maybe possibly got himself in a position that he cannot get out. So as you know, last week, Donald J. Trump fired the FBI director, James Comey. And at the time, they said they fired him because of the way that he treated Hillary Clinton. And we all <laughs> knew that was a steaming, hefty pile of bullcrap covered with Keystone Light because that is a trashy drink that they drink in the Trump administration. <laughs> and we knew it was a lie. And his his like his admins came out and they said that's why we that's why he fired him. His VP came out and said that's why he fired him. And Trump the next day said, Nah, I didn't fire him because of that. I fired him because of the Russia investigation. And then, of course, his people look like um, that SpongeBob meme when, like, everything gets blurry and you're scared because life comes at you fast. And then a couple of days <laughs> later, Donald Trump said, wait, 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 no. What I meant to say was what my admin said. I have fired him because of this letter. Now, fast forward to the beginning of this week, and all of a sudden, what we are learning is that James, six foot eight, I ruined Hillary Clinton's chances of being a, the first woman president, Comey, has receipts. So one thing you should know about James Comey is this man takes notes on everything. You ever had that friend that when you're hanging out, that no matter what you're doing, they have to document it on social media? My girlfriend is like that. I hate oh, it. Oh, that's Selena. She's like, Snapchat! Oh, my God. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> we were at Alyssa's house like a year ago, and we were walking in, in the neighborhood, and she goes, and she forgot her phone. And she was so desperate to document it that she just made believe her hand was Snapchat. And she was like, what up, Snapchat? We in here. Well, James Comey is a white version of that. He takes notes. So when he was under the Bush administration, under the Department of Justice and the Bush administration, was trying to get the DOJ to reauthorize the ability to torture people, James Comey fought back. He pushed back. So, of course, the Bush White House, being responsible like they are, they tried to throw James Comey under the bus. Unfortunately, James Comey got those receipts on Zeckington. So after every conversation, he would document what was said by who, when, why, and where. And when they went to the hearings, he was like, hey, Listen, boo-boo, on June 10th, 2005, George H.W. Bush said to me, oh, we should start stabbing people in the shoulders in Afghanistan to talk about terror and stuff. And I said, no. And he said, yeah. And I said, no. And he said, America. And then I walked out the room. So because he has a history of documenting things like this, and not even dry snitching, but just straight up straight snitching on people. He's a cop. Well, 
That's true. <laughs> He's still a snitch. All right? So, so we should have known that he had the propensity to do the same thing. So now he's fired. He's filling out his unemployment papers. And I don't know, maybe he see, he saw Donald Trump living his life like it's golden on Instagram, and he got mad. And we all know when a breakup happens and you're mad and you get into your bag, you can be petty. So James Comey has become petty, and he started releasing his notes, his receipts on Donald Trump. And guess what these notes said? Donald well, Trump approached him was like, hey, let's forget about this Flint thing, okay? Don't do that. Straight up said that to him, which you know you cannot do. Two, Donald Trump was like, hey, am I being investigated? I'm not, right? I'm not, right? 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 Comey was like, chill. Three, Donald Trump kept harassing him and like trying to be friends with him. At one point, James Comey tried to hide behind the blue sheets. So imagine I'm James Comey and this microphone is a curtain. This was James Comey, all six foot eight of him hiding behind the curtain. And Donald Trump said, hey, come here. Come here, let me hug you. James Comey tried to shake his hand and Donald Trump hugged him. You know that moment when you see a girl you like and you go to give her a hug and she gives you a fist bump real quick, that calm dub? That's what James Comey tried to get to Donald Trump. Donald Trump wouldn't let him. Now, Moving forward, along with these leaks coming out, we also find out that Donald Trump released some classified information to Russia. <laughs> well, Just, you guys want to jump in for a second? I yeah, I mean, you know, the president has the ability to uh, declassify anything, so it's technically not the release of classified information, but what it really is is it's the fundamental misunderstanding of how counterintelligence works, and it's the fundamental, uh, you know, attack on our intelligence agencies which is obviously in his interest because they're all investigating him yes. and you know it just shows how childish donald trump is his lack of attention span and his fundamental uh, uh, being completely averse to understanding how the government works you're way too nice elliot he's stupid plain and simple he's so stupid here, here's why it was problematic for him to release this information because he did it to russia oh and by the way he met with russia earlier in that week and when he met with them he did not allow any u.s media to come in but guess who could come in the russian media and they were there when donald trump said i fired james coney and this guy is nuts and it's a huge weight off my back with the investigation and then proceeded to give the russians the people who we know are our enemies information about where we got our information from, thereby dry snitching on someone risking their life to get us information on ISIS. And yes, this could be nothing. Or, because we know Russia has multiple back channels, they could let their boys in ISIS know, and ISIS can go put a hit out on the person that has been helping us out, therefore killing a valuable asset that wasn't even ours. It was Israel's. Well, and so the real problem is, right, the way the intelligence community works, it's all based on trust. And so you get that information because other countries' intelligence communities trust us. They trust that the way that this information is going to be disseminated is only if the information, the originating country here, Israel, if they say, yeah, okay, America, it's okay for you to go out there and disseminate this information to Russia, to whoever else, that's how it normally works. Trump doesn't care about that process. Now our foreign allies aren't going to trust us they're not going to give us this information anymore and that's the real problem how are we going to how are we going to how are we going to thwart terrorist threats if our allies aren't willing to share this information with us and not only our allies don't trust us the american people don't seem to trust the trump administration either and his approval rating has plummeted to the point now that republicans are finally starting to take some motions or at least act like they care and one of the things that happened this week one of the biggest things that happened this week was an independent prosecutor was appointed that's right former fbi director robert Mueller is going to be the special counsel charged with investigating possible collusion between the trump campaign and russia 
This is a huge win for Democrats, but this could be a major loss for the Trump administration and Republicans because this is not just a congressional investigation. It is now criminal, which brings us to this point of where we are through this week. And it's time for us to kind of decompress and break it all down. Alyssa, you have been chomping at the bits. I want to get to you. Yeah, you guys are just going back and forth and trying to mansplain over me. What's up with that, man? <laughs> hey. I just got some sexism going on in the studio This is the today. sexism episode. Uh, no, but like, like, wait, let's go back a second, right? So... Every week we think it can't get any crazier and then it gets crazier. I mean, I literally have to turn off the breaking news updates because every two seconds I'm jolted out of my seat by a breaking news update. I'm about I'm going to have a panic attack by the time next week is over. Um, I mean, last week we had a crazy amount of breaking news that we couldn't even keep up with. And we were like, well, maybe it will calm down this week. And then it starts Monday. So first we have on Monday, James Comey gets fired. Then we hear that Trump was leaking information, as you already said, out to the Russians. Then we hear that he tried to ask Comey to drop an investigation into Michael Flynn that he was a good job. Then he wanted Comey to come out and say that he was a good guy and that the FBI was not investigating him. Then we know that he told the Russians that James Comey was a nut job. We all, and, and in all of this, we know that we also found out that the Trump administration knew that Mike Flynn was being investigated before they even hired him and that there was letters sent to Mike Pence, the head of the transition, letting them know that Flynn was compromised and they should not hire him. And they hired him anyway. And at the same time, they knew on January fourth, three weeks before Trump the inauguration. Trump is leaking information to the Russians, as you pointed out, and this all culminates in now a special prosecutor being assigned. So, just I mean, like all of that is just news that happened this week alone. So, listen, which let me, is let like me, seventeen let me, let me different you, scandals. Let me stop you for a second, listen, because what I what I need you to do for the listeners now is explain what this federal federal prosecutor is and what, like, what his role is going to be. Okay, I'm going to explain the federal prosecutor. Um, special prosecutor. Special prosecutor in just half a second, which is to say that, because I wanted to address one thing you said earlier, which is what he did to Comey to ask him to drop the investigation and then to admit to certain, potentially admit to certain crimes, is literally the equivalent of somebody walking up to a cop and being like, hey guys, I have some cocaine in my pocket. Do you want to search me right now? I mean, that's how dumb it really is, him opening his mouth. Um, but just to explain what a special prosecutor is. So um, there are several different ways that our government investigates things. So first you have the Senate and the House investigations. Those are being run by committees and they eventually lead to reports and they could uh, in some ways convince the uh, Congress to bring articles of impeachment, which is something I'm going to talk about during the next segment, the quickie, uh, later on in the show. Um, but at the end of the day those lead to reports, commission reports. They don't, they aren't actually a criminal investigation. Then there is the old version of the the independent prosecutor, which does not exist anymore. That is something that was created after Watergate, where the judiciary, the Supreme Court, would actually appoint a special prosecutor that was overseen completely by the judicial uh, department and was basically totally different and apart and distinguished from the executive branch such that the president could not fire this person and they had the independent authority to investigate. Um, they eventually, that expired in, back in 1999 and Congress decided not to renew that program and instead they renewed the special prosecutor program. So essentially, this special prosecutor is appointed by the executive branch, by you know, the Department of Justice, in this case by Rod Rothstein, because... Rosenstein. Ro sorry, Rosenstein, because I thought it was Rothstein. Um, but 
I could have that wrong um, because, as you know, Jeff Sessions has had to recuse himself from this uh, being the attorney general in this situation because of his own connections with Russia. And so Rod uh, has now appointed this uh, special prosecutor who is Robert Mueller, who's the director of the FBI, to independently look into the connections or possible connections between Trump and Russia and collusion between the Trump administration and the Trump campaign and the Russians and the hacking of our election and the leaking of Hillary Clinton and the DNC emails. Um, And that is, as you point out, going to be a criminal investigation, which at the end of it could possibly lead to criminal charges of the president's associates in actually potentially criminal charges of the president himself. Um, At the same time, that will not It could lead to an impeachment, but impeachment is a separate proceeding, so you should keep that in mind. And I will explain the impeachment proceedings later on during the quickie. Thank you for that, Alyssa. I want to ask a question because it looks like things are heating up on Trump and he may get caught. What about Mike Pence? Because Mike Pence... So we've learned that Mike Pence knew about Flynn having money from Turkey. We also know that... Mike Flynn, while he was still in the NSA, he had talked the government out of like passing some foreign aid policy that would have negatively like affected Turkey. Mike Pence knew about all these things. What are the chances that he gets implicated in this? Well, uh, so let's go back to the Nixon administration, right? So Nixon was also impeached for obstruction of justice, right? He resigned before he was impeached. Nixon Nixon, uh, was accused of uh, doing obstruction of justice, so he resigned, right? Well, the thing that a lot of people forget about is that 46 Nixon administration officials were convicted and went to prison related to that related to that story. And here, uh, things are snowballing a lot more quickly than they did during the Nixon administration, right? And because of all of these different documents uh, showing what happened and the FBI director and Comey, everything that's been leaked, I think that it's a lot I think it's very likely that it's going to come out that all of these people in Trump's inner circle knew they've come out and lied. We've already seen it on television Trump constantly contradicting them. The it looks like the administration with Pence and the inner circle they come up with a story that they think is politically palatable, right? They come out and they they explain that to the American people and then what happens? Trump says, "Oh, you know what? Forget that. Uh this is what actually happened." Yeah. Yeah, of course I fired him because of the Trump or because of the Russian administration or the the Russian investigation. investigation. So Alyssa, now along with Trump pretty much just throwing everyone under the bus, the Republican Party got into a little bit of trouble this week when it was released that Kevin McCarthy, the Republican majority leader, said that he suspects that Donald Trump is getting money from Russia. Paul Ryan, who was also in the room when that happened, cut him over and said, we're not going to talk about this here. The, the fact that this doesn't get recorded shows how much of a family we are. Clearly, they're not a family because well, they're so recorded. That uh, happened. Just, just, one, just hold, hold up for one second. Actually, my question for you is now, it seems there's starting to be some steam building up saying that Republicans knew that Trump was getting this money and, and either refused to cooperate or didn't say anything. Do you think that it, this might hit deeper than just Trump's administration and maybe Paul Ryan and, and Kevin McCarthy and others? I mean, I don't know about that. I don't know. Like, I, I think if anything, they may be implicated in the fact that they may have known. But here's what, you know, but not in that they were involved in the collusion, assuming there was any collusion. Right. We still don't know that we have a lot of information. It certainly looks like there was collusion, if not by Trump directly, but by other people within his administration. There's obviously a lot of friendly connections between Trump and the Russians, which has raised more questions than it 
has answered. Um, but to get to your question, the funny thing about this video is the first thing is when when this information comes out, of course, they say, oh, no, 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 this isn't true. This never happened. And then the Washington Post is like, no, but actually we have audio of it. Like we actually <laughs> have the audio of you doing it. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a joke mm -hmm. a yeah. joke right so you know i wonder how much of a joke that actually is the one uh, the one point i just wanted to point out about that is that, that conversation was recorded on june 11th 2016 during the campaign and uh you know i'm not trying to defend them at all i'm just trying to make clear that this didn't happen last week this is something that <laughs> this is something that the republicans have been talking about and apparently joking about uh since bef well before he was elected, before this even came out in the public that as a problem. That even more, though, because that means that they've known about this and they've been quiet and leaving called people ridiculous for talking about it. Alyssa, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, listen, you have to understand why people, a lot of people have asked, we should go back for a second, which is like, why, why the involvement with Russia to begin with? And the answer to that is uh, that Vladimir Putin has long wanted to regain back the Eastern Bloc countries that Russia lost when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989. We're talking about Latvia, Lithuania, Slovakia, uh, Ukraine, Ukraine. Um, all of these Eastern Bloc countries, right? And so the reason why Russia has not been able to essentially take back these Eastern Bloc countries is because of NATO. And because NATO and the Western allies in Europe have said, no, Russia, you cannot be aggressive. You cannot take these countries back. These are independent sovereign nations that have have their own political system, their own political government, right? But by employing, but if America was to, for example, say we don't want to be involved in NATO anymore, or we don't mind if the Russians start invading these territories in eastern Ukraine uh, and in eastern Europe, then you have a situation where then Russia can potentially t take back these territories that they've always wanted to take back since they lost them back in 1989. And so what do you need for that? You need a friend in America that is going to turn a blind eye to you being aggressive and like, for example, occupying Crimea. And so what do you do? Well, you have an election, you help that person who you think is going to be friendly, do you get elected over their political opponent because you then think that they're going to support you later on. And so that's a big part of what is going on and why this really matters. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. This is WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. And we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. If you were just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz. You can't see me on the Facebook Live camera. And I'm here with Alyssa Fuchs and, of course, Elliot the Man. And, guys, if you want to know what we're talking about, of course, we're talking about Donald Trump and the Russia investigation and everything that has happened. But while we were off air for a break, Elliot asked a really good question. So I want to throw it to him to ask to all of us. Elliot. Let us know. So, uh, you know, one of uh, one of the things that happened this week is Rod Rosenstein has appointed Robert Mueller as a special prosecutor, and liberals generally say, "Oh, this is a great, this is a great thing that's going to happen." Robert Mueller, he's very respected, former FBI director for 16 years. Everybody, everybody in Washington knows that he's the real deal, and he's not gonna he's not gonna glance over what happened. But Senator Lindsey Graham raised a very good question. Now that Rod Rosenstein has appointed Robert Mueller to conduct this investigation, is it all going to be conducted behind closed doors? Is the public going to be inhibited from understanding what's going on? 
up to this point, it's been congressional committees that have been conducting the investigation. And so the public has had the ability to understand what steps are taken, what's happening, what are the allegations against the Trump administration. And thank God, James Comey turned down the Senate Intelligence Committee to, uh, invitation to testify at a closed hearing. He said, no, I will only testify at an open hearing so that the public can hear my testimony and understand why I think Trump is lying. Now, it, so the question is, you know, is Robert Mueller, is he going to do the same thing? Is he going to make his findings public? Is he going to update these, uh, is he going to testify in public hearings throughout the process to let the public know what's going on? If that doesn't happen, I think that is going to be a real problem and that people are going to, you know, keep wondering, is was this actually a good idea? And, I mean, we got to ask the question. Rod Rosenstein, he was chosen by, you know, he was chosen by the president to be the person to take over this investigation because Jeff Sessions was obviously conflicted out. What happens if what happens if Jeff Sessions gets implicated? Are they gonna are they gonna release that information? These are all p- problems that we need to we need to have answers to. So let me stop you right there. You may bring up a really good point. Yeah, with this guy here, there might be a lot of information that is not made public. However, if someone else gets implicated to the point that they need to step down from their position, I don't think and you guys can like pull my collar from wrong. I don't think that they can legally not make that public. Jason Chavez is stepping down from Congress, which, you know, it's a totally different thing. But I suspect that I mean, he may have had a hand to play in this as well. Maybe not a huge one, but one enough that he knows that he would lose a seat. Well, Alyssa? I mean, I think the important thing to remember is the thing that I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, which is the investigations that are going on by the Senate and by the House are congressional investigations that are never, ever, ever going to end in criminal charges. They are not criminal investigations. So I do agree that there is some concern about the public-private thing. But these Senate and House investigations are going to continue. Just because there's now the special prosecutor that is going to be conducting an independent criminal investigation um, and that it's not no longer going to be uh, conducted basically solely by the FBI, which is run by Donald Trump and which Donald Trump, as you saw, can fire the FBI director as a way to try and quash the investigation, which is why there's all these allegations now of whether or not he's committed obstruction of justice by trying to do that. Um, So I still think there's going to be a lot of public information that comes out through the congressional hearings. Now, through the private criminal investigation, I do agree with you that there's it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to take more time for us to find out information about the criminal investigation. Um, it may be a situation where Robert Mueller conducts a very, very thorough investigation um, over a period of time. But eventually, at the end, they're going to come out and there's going to be like, well, either all these people in the Trump administration are being charged with a crime and the president committed a crime um, and or. It's going to come out that they haven't found anything, that they, they have all that, you know, it's just basically circumstantial, not circumstantial. It's basically they're going to come out and say it was a coincidence. Like, yes, it's undisputed that Russia hacked our election. And yes, it's undisputed that, um, you know, it influenced whether or not Hillary won, but we can't find anything that directly connects the administration uh, to the hack. And so and if that happens, what do we do? And if, if, if that happens and Trump is fine, what's the next step in this? Because a lot of energy has been focused on this investigation, especially over the last two weeks or so. I mean, if, if nothing happens, then nothing happens. I mean, then you have to exercise your right to vote Donald Trump out of office at the ballot box. 
in two well vote Congress out the, out of office at the ballot box of 2018 and then vote Donald Trump out of office at the ballot box of 2020. I mean, because that's the only other thing. I mean, Donald Trump is not going to be impeached and or removed or both um, if there's no evidence that he actually did anything, right? And so, we, you know, it's weird because uh, on one hand, we spend a lot of time talking about, like, innocent until proven guilty, right? On the other hand, we're sitting around discussing a lot of circumstantial evidence that inclines us all to believe that Donald Trump may have committed a crime or that if he didn't, at least somebody within his administration did. Um, But, you know, we still have to have sort of that same standard of understanding that until we have more evidence that has actually come out that proves this beyond a reasonable doubt um, that everything that we are talking about here is speculation. And sure, it looks really bad. I mean, and it looked really bad for Nixon. And eventually it really was really bad for Nixon. And maybe it will be really bad for Donald Trump also. But at this point in the game, we just don't know that yet. And before I finish, I have one question for you, because my friends and I were talking about this yesterday, which is if for a second Mike Pence is implicated and Donald Trump is implicated and it comes out bad for both of them, then what happens? Paul Ryan's going to become president. Mm-hmm. And that is a situation that most of us feel is worse because he then will enact the conservative agenda that we're really, you know, and and, and probably will have an easy time doing so. So we're, what do you feel about that? We're, we're all screwed no matter what. I, I'm willing to fight Paul Ryan. I'm not willing to live under Trump and his aggressive incompetence because it, it, it creates additional implications that it, they're just not worth having to deal with. When we're talking about going to war with North Korea, seriously, you, you don't you don't need to you, like you don't need that kind of person running your country. You absolutely do not need that. But now, uh, just to kind of get the conversation flowing a, a, a little bit different of a place, if this were Hillary Clinton wanted to raise that if this were hillary clinton where would we be right now in in, in this process i'll go with elliot first because he hasn't talked in a while the chance lock her up lock her up lock her up that's exactly where we would be if she was elected and donald trump wasn't you know he would be all over the news right now saying lock her up lock her up all his supporters would be out there at the white house but would, would he be right of course he wouldn't be right if this was hillary oh if if hillary had actually done this mm-hmm. if tables were turned you know i mean I think it's a fact, you know, just look at what happened to Obama. They investigated Obama throughout his entire administration. They stonewalled him every turn. They would be using every single thing that they could do in the Congress with their supporters, on the news channels, all the Sunday news, everything they would do would be locker up, locker up. But I get that, and I want to talk to Alyssa, but before I do, just yes or no, would they be right to be chanting that and trying to lock her up? If she did the things that Trump's accused if she of, did yes. the, of course, of course. Then why are the we? The law is the law. Then why are we even having a conversation? I thought this to Alyssa about if, if, if. Well, I mean, the reason why because of the whole uh, thing where all Donald Trump has to say is this is fake news. It's all fake, right? Could you imagine D- Richard Nixon is rolling over in his grave, going, "Man, if I would have just said that it was all fake news and that they were all making it up and that everything was a lie, maybe I wouldn't have had to resign. Maybe I could commit convince people that I didn't actually commit this awful crime of." you know, having my associates break into the Watergate Hotel and steal all the Democrats' secrets. Um, But, you know, there's really a certain level of hypocrisy to all of this because if 
Hillary Clinton would have done even half of the things that Donald Trump is accused of. Not only would they would have started impeachment proceedings already. Now, obviously, we should remember during the Watergate scandal, the Democrats controlled the House. The Democrats controlled the Senate. So they had a lot more power to conduct investigations and to lean on the Nixon administration that we don't have right now because Democrats are essentially a party out of power. But like I talk to people that are Trump supporters that are like, oh, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. You guys are all made. This is a partisan witch hunt, partisan witch hunt. And then I have to say to them, like, okay, if Hillary Clinton would have colluded with a foreign government, the Russians or anybody else to hack the election and get Donald Trump and the Trump campaign's emails um, and then leak those emails out onto the Internet. And then Hillary Clinton would have gone to the FBI director and say, hey, can you stop investigating me? Because, you know, I haven't done anything wrong um, and tried to influence the FBI investigation. Republicans would not only be ripping their hair out, they would be following Hillary Clinton around with a pitchfork and burning torches so that they could literally burn that be at the stake, which is what they would say. So, you know, there's definitely but but when Donald Trump does it, of course, it's a non-issue. It's fake news. It's <laughs> alternative facts. And it's because these people have lived in this alternative fact bubble for so long that they do not believe that any of this information is credible. And it's all about there's such blind partisanship that they forget that they have to do what's good for the country and instead have just done what's good for their party. So I'm going to stop you right there. We do have to wrap this up. I want to give Elliot, do you have like any last things to say before we throw it to Alyssa the closing you know uh, one thing I think is really important to know is that where the congressional Republicans here they're not coming out and they're not coming out and condemning Trump right now and I want to leave it uh, with this question why why are they doing that what is their goal if they know all of this information they're all briefed they know more than the public what is their goal? I think they're a bunch of spineless politicians who are trying to take advantage of the Trump administration while he's still in office to get their tax cut plan passed and hurt the American people. And then once that happens, once they have Trump's signature on the bills that they want to get passed, I don't think they're going to be loyal at all anymore. They're going to say, all right, now, now that we have this evidence, let's get him out of office. Let's impeach him. All right, Alyssa, take us home. I mean, listen, like I said, I think that this is all a lot of blind partisanship. There used to be a time in this country where people put politics second. They put their country before their party, and they put people over party and people over politics. We have now reached a point in time and in history where there is such blind partisanship that they are willing to overlook transgressions and ignore very, very strong circumstantial evidence that shows that there was at least collusion between the Trump associates and the Russians to hack the election, to thwart Hillary Clinton's campaign, and then to obstruct justice by attempting to uh, convince Comey not to engage in investigating their thing. And so, you know, I really think that we need to take a step back, that we need to assess all the evidence, that we shouldn't jump to conclusions, but that we really need to take a good, hard look. And yeah, I agree with Elliot. Republicans in Congress are completely spineless. They care more about passing their own agenda that actually will harm the American people than they do about investigating these things. I'm really, really happy that Robert Mueller is now being appointed, but we cannot continue to have a democracy if we are going to live in a place where we cannot agree on the very certain facts and where we're going to set double standards, where we hold Hillary and Democrats to one standard and we hold Republicans to another standard. Just remember, this is our country on the line. We need to be paying 
paying attention to these things. And if it turns out that Donald Trump really did know about this and really did collude with the Russians, then Republicans need to step up and they need to start bringing articles of impeachment. They need, and especially no matter what the consequences are, even if it's going to affect them politically, because at the end of the day, if they don't step up, then we're going to have a situation where we no longer have a democracy. Instead, we have a fascist aristocracy, a fascist government that is run by the kleptocracy where the richest people keep getting richer and the poorest people keep getting poorer and we don't get anywhere except worse than where we are right now and that's just not a good shout there you go all right guys we're going on a quick break when we come back it'll be the quickie and the impeachment process Alyssa's gonna learn us this is nirvana every day for all i care I'm so happy Alyssa is doing a quickie about impeachments. I'm so busy. I can hear Elliot talking on his mic. <laughs> we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz with Alyssa Fuchs and, of course, Elliot Shields. We just finished a conversation about Donald Trump and what's going on with the FBI investigation on his possible collusion with Russia. But now it's time for the quickie. I don't want to take up any more of her time. Donald Trump could be impeached. What does it look like? Go. So as you know, we just finished talking about whether or not Donald Trump was colluding with Russia. We don't know the outcome to that. Even if he wasn't, he potentially could be impeached for obstruction of justice for attempting to influence the FBI investigation based on the actions uh, that he took that we're finding out about with respect to our former top law enforcement agent, uh, which is James Comey. So um, let's talk for a second about impeachment because people seem to get impeachment really, really, really wrong. And they seem to think that when somebody gets impeached, I mean, and when specifically a president gets impeached, although other officials such as judges can be impeached, but we're not going to talk about that today, um, that impeachment means they are actually removed from office. But that is not actually true. Um, An impeachment is actually closer an indictment. I'm going to talk about that a little further on during this segment. So what is impeachment? The Constitution permits Congress to remove presidents before their term is up if enough lawmakers vote to say that the president has committed treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, the Constitution does not actually define high crimes and misdemeanors, so it is really completely up to the Senate to determine uh, what this phrase high crimes and misdemeanors means. Only three presidents in the history of America have ever been subjected to impeachment proceedings. Two were impeached, but they were then acquitted by the Senate, which means they stayed in office. And uh, Andrew Johnson in 1868 and Bill Clinton in 1998 and 1999. A third person, Richard Nixon, in 1974 resigned before he could actually be impeached. 
So what is the process? Impeachment really means indictment. So when you think of impeachment, think indictment. An indictment does not mean somebody is found guilty of the crime. It doesn't mean they're going to jail. An indictment means that a prosecutor has put forth some evidence before a grand jury, and the grand jury has voted that there, based on this evidence, there is probable cause to believe somebody has committed a crime such that we can continue to bring criminal proceedings against them. That's exactly what impeachment is. Again, impeachment does not mean you are being removed for office because if you get acquitted at the impeachment trial, which is held by the Senate, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, then you are not removed from office. So when you're thinking about impeachment, think the grand jury voted to indict. In this case, it's the House voting to impeach. When you are thinking about removal from office, think about what happens at a criminal trial later on down the road. The jury actually votes either guilty or not guilty. And if the jury votes guilty, you go to jail. And if the jury votes not guilty, then you are acquitted and then you are then released. Um, Obviously, here, if the Senate votes guilty, you are removed from office. If the Senate votes not guilty, then you remain in office. So that is a really, really big thing to keep in mind because people use the word impeachment and they think that means removal. But impeachment is really just the first step in the process. It does not mean remorse. It does not mean removal. So how does this actually work? First, the House of Representatives votes on one or more articles of impeachment. If at least one article of impeachment gets a majority vote, then the president is impeached or indicted. Next, the proceedings move to the Senate. The Senate holds a trial that is actually overseen by the chief justices of the Supreme Court, who, as we know, is John Roberts. He would be the judge of the case, just like a judge in a criminal court. The team of lawmakers from the House, which is known as the managers, they play the role of the prosecutors, which means they are bringing the case for impeachment against the president. The president has defense lawyers who represent him in his defense, and the Senate is the jury. If at least two-thirds of the senators vote to find the president guilty of one or more of the things that he is accused of in the articles of impeachment, then the president is removed from office and the vice president takes over. Now, if it turns out that the vice president also get impeached because he is in some ways implicated or there is articles of impeachment brought against him as well, then what happens is both the the president and the vice president can be removed from office and then the Speaker of the House, which in this case would be Paul Ryan, becomes the president. So what does this trial actually look like? What are the rules? Well, here's the first thing you should know. Unlike a criminal trial, there are no rules. There are no standard rules. The Senate passes a resolution called an impeachment resolution, which lays out the trial procedures. And actually, in some cases, they make these procedures up as they go along. For example, in the Clinton case, the initial rules in the case gave the uh, managers four days to make a case for why the president should be, at the time, Bill Clinton, the former President Clinton, should be convicted of these articles of impeachment. He was accused of lying under oath, followed by Clinton's defense attorneys having four days to defend him. Essentially, these were opening statements like we have in criminal cases. Then the Senate decided whether to hear witnesses, and if so, they then decided whether these witnesses would be live or on videotape. In the Clinton case, the Senate permitted each size to, to actually examine these witnesses by videotape, but some of them actually showed up live. The rules adopted by the Senate, including the number of witnesses and the length of the testimony, make it harder for a 
to prove a case compared with trials in federal court. So in federal court or in state court during a criminal trial, there is no limit on how long a witness can be on the stand for. There is no limit on the number of witnesses the prosecution or the defense can call. But here, the Senate can actually put a cap on that. They can say, well, we're only going to hear from five witnesses or we're only going to hear from each witnesses for an hour. And unlike in regular criminal court, the jury, the Senate, is also the people that sets the rules. So in criminal court, the judge tells the jury what the rules are. Here, the Senate decides on their own rules. So the Senate can decide, hey, we want to hear that evidence. Oh, or no, we're not going to hear that crucial piece of evidence from either side, which is totally crazy, which means they could, the Senate can literally say, ah, we don't feel like hearing that evidence. Um, we, we, we're just going to pretend like it doesn't exist. Um, what are the standards? The Constitution allows for impeachment as I said, for treason, bribery of high crimes and misdemeanors, but there's no controlling law about what that standard means. So it's actually up to the Senate to choose whether or not they believe a president has violated that standard. Um, as I said, President Clinton was impeached by Congress when he was the opposition party controlled both houses and the Senate. Um, in Mr. Trump's case, the op- the party actually, his own party controls both chambers. That makes it even more har- uh, difficult to impeach him because they can decide that they don't want to hear a certain amount of evidence. And so that essentially, in a nutshell, is the impeachment process. Um, side note, there is sort of one other way that the president can be removed, which is called the 25th Amendment removal. Um, that means that when the president is too disabled to carry out his duties of the office, um, as opposed to presidential lawbreaking. We've seen that when Ronald Reagan got shot, the vice president became the president for a limited amount of time because uh, the president, Reagan, at the time was in surgery. He could not act in his duties. Um, But the 25th Amendment is not usually used for lawbreaking. And so it's likely that that will not become a way which Donald Trump is removed. And so that is essentially, in a nutshell, how the impeachment process works. Wow. It's crazy, so, right? Yeah. Wait, like the most amazing part of this is you can make up your own rules. Yeah, I'm still blown literally, away by that. The, if the, the president can, the I'm sorry, the prosecutors in the Senate could say, we want to put on this evidence of like Donald Trump talking on the phone to somebody in Russia. And the Senate could be like, ah, no, we don't really want to hear that evidence. That is crazy. Well, guys, that was the quickie. You know about the impeachment process. You can sound smart to your friends. I plan to do so. Well, not to Elizabeth, because she'll be like, I told you that. And then I can't think, think of a good lie to talk back to her so anyways guys we are getting out of here if you love what you hear and you want to hear more you can subscribe to us on itunes or on stitcher or anywhere you get your podcast follow us on twitter follow us on facebook at be heard underscore radio and of course we're here every sunday from 11 a.m to 1 p.m unfortunately next week we will not be here for memorial day weekend memorial day. Alyssa will be somewhere in virginia getting St- drunk standing will be somewhere at brunch uh, Selena will be somewhere at church. church. But anyways, guys, we do have more programming coming up. Up next is Underdog Stuff with Gregory Naismith. He's my favorite guy in the world. Very smart. And they have a cast of characters coming up for this week's Mountly cast of characters, which I said already, which includes politics, culture, and your own personal life. If you're looking for a way to become inspired, if you're looking for a way to learn and improve yourself, but you also want to talk about politics, you also want to talk about social issues, you want to talk about the FBI director, the intelligent women who are fighting Trump, and of course have some fun listen to the underdog stuff coming up next and while you wait for him i'm going to leave you guys with the song this is lupe fiasco words i've never said whcr 90.3 fm new york